0: Welcome back to Propel, Alan and Overy's podcast addressing all things related to self-driving vehicles. Our guest today is Councillor Tom Hayes, Oxford City Council's deputy leader. Counselor Hayes is a cabinet member for the Green Transport and Zero Carbon Oxford, and he holds responsibility for the decarbonization of the city with a special emphasis on mobility and transport. He also is the 2020 winner of the Environment and Sustainability Pioneer Award, for the Local Government Information Unit, the leading UK local government organization. Away from the Council, Councillor Hayes is Chief Executive of an Oxfordshire Mental Health, Domestic Abuse, and Complex Need Charity, has previously worked in the UK Parliament and for the international aid charity Oxfam. Tom holds degrees from Manchester and Cambridge Universities and has served as an International Relations Fellow at Yale University. Councillor Hayes, welcome to Propel. Hello, great to be here. Well, let's get started with you and your involvement in what many consider to be the EV revolution taking place in Oxford. Can you tell us more about your role and what you hope to achieve?
1: Absolutely. So I'm the City Council's Cabinet Member for Green Transport and Zero Carbon Oxford, and the title's really deliberately chosen. It's in order to be solutions focused. You're seeing local councils and governments around the world declaring a climate emergency, which is important, but it's a diagnosis of the problem. And here in Oxford, we wanted to show our partners and our citizens that we're very focused on the kind of city we want to build. A zero carbon Oxford and green transport is at the heart of that. And you're completely right. The EV revolution has been long in the making. EVs have been around for more than a century. They've waxed and waned in popularity compared with internal combustion engines. But it does very much feel like the moment is here for EVs and that that moment is involving a revolution that is a real increase in the pace of uptake in EVs, and you're particularly seeing that in Oxford.
0: So tell me more about that. What is Oxford doing to try to make that a reality? And if you could also explain to us how autonomous or self-driving cars fit in the picture. Sure.
1: So we're focused on encouraging the EV revolution for a number of reasons. The primary reasons are to meet our climate crisis and to clean up our air. And we know that fossil fuel vehicles can have a contribution to both. So in Oxford, city-wide carbon emissions coming from transport are pretty significant. we are seeing 16 percent of citywide carbon emissions coming from on-road transport, And we're also seeing that 68 percent of the city's air pollution problem comes from transport too. So for us, it's really key that we get down emissions from our fossil fuel vehicles, and the way to do that is by directly swapping out fossil fuel vehicles for EVs. It's also about trying to encourage more people to get onto bikes for the first time or for the first time in a while. And the way to do that is by reallocating road space. So the way we do that is by reducing the number of private vehicles on our road and ensuring what vehicles remain are very much electric or zero emissions. And we're operating here within a UK government framework. The government has set out its ambition for all new cars to be electric by 2030, with between 50 to 75 percent of new cars sold being electric vehicles um, by that time. And the City Council has campaigned for this, along with our partners. The ban on the sale of petrol and diesel vehicles from 2030 is a really significant moment. But already in Oxfordshire, we're seeing socioeconomic factors leading to far faster growth in EV sales than the national average. And because we have the University of Oxford on our doorstep, we're fortunate to have their predictions, which say that by 2025, we could see up to 30,000 EVs in Oxfordshire roads. So for the council, the role fundamentally is about how do we encourage the uptake of EV on an accelerated basis? if we agree that EVs are critical for cleaning up our dirty air and reducing carbon emissions. And for us, the big thing is around charging infrastructure. And we've really focused on trying to get the right kind of infrastructure into communities and so that people feel comfortable about swapping out their fossil fuel vehicles for EVs. We've got a real problem in Oxford. It's not unique to Oxford, it's unique to UK cities, that we just don't have significant numbers of households with off-road parking. It's a real challenge for us. So we need to be able to find a way where we can realize EV demand by urgently providing EV charging infrastructure for the 30 or 40 percent of households with no off-road parking who are unable to install an EV charger. And we estimate that the city will need a minimum of 6,000 public charge points just to reach net zero within our timelines. And for me, it's not just about increasing the uptake of EVs. It's a point of principle. It's a point of equity. In Oxford, we've got some populations that are better off. And so they'll have large driveways and larger homes attached to them. And for those people, EV charging will absolutely be fine. But we all know the stereotypes that persist around EVs, the idea that they are a niche form of transport, which are reserved for well-off people. And if we're to create mass electoral automobility, then we need to make sure that we, through our public policy interventions, are providing EV charging infrastructure available for the wider public, particularly those people without those large driveways. And so for us, speeding up the EV revolution, has involved two big fundamental questions. How do we ensure that residents, businesses, and visitors can have confidence that they can recharge their EVs conveniently and in a manner appropriate for their needs? Because otherwise, why would somebody buy an EV? And secondly, how do we make sure that our EV charging provision is developing to meet not just the needs of local users now, but also in the future? Because we can guarantee that there'll be continued technological development. And in Oxford, we're on the forefront of that technological development. We've got the world's first pop-up on-street chargers. So one of the big problems around EV charging infrastructure is that it can take away public infrastructural space. It can block access for disabled, elderly people, people with buggies pushing their children around, I think you call it strollers in the US. So we want to make sure that we've got pop-up on-street chargers. It literally involves a driver walking by the space where the charger is. The FOB activates the charger and they pop out of the ground. And then once the charging is complete, they simply retract back into the ground. We're very lucky to have these as a trial. The eyes of the world are on them. We've had visitors from China coming over to look at our EV charging technology. And we've also got other types of infrastructure, such as chargers that we have installed within our lamp posts, again, to minimize the amount of blockages of pavements in the streets. And we're also experimenting with cable gullies. And... For us, it's also about trying to finally come up with a solution to that big question, which is will an urban area try to address its EV charging needs through off-street charging or through big hubs? And so in Oxford, we're going to become the UK's largest EV charging hub at the middle of this year. And we're really excited
0: about that and all the different charging technologies that we're trialing. Truly impressive. I've got a few questions about that, but before we, we get to those, you've talked about your infrastructure push are there other policies in place or or being put in place to try to help this uptake in EVs? And can you give us a sense of your outlook for self-driving cars?
1: Sure. So we're operating within the UK government framework around encouraging vehicles that are going to be bought to be electric vehicles. And we're trying to really encourage that to go further and faster. To have that come in by 2030 is still a number of years away. And so we're pursuing two primary approaches. First is our zero emission zone. We still believe it will be a world's first zero emission zone, consulted upon in a really systematic way, with a really sophisticated method of enforcement and restriction. It's based on a road charging scheme, so we're using the powers available to us by the UK government and the UK parliament, and it's about ensuring that only vehicles with zero emissions can come into our city centre streets. We're starting the pilot in the middle of this year, and we're going to be expanding out to the rest of the city centre, hopefully by the back end of next year. So, we're really accelerating forward our journey towards becoming a zero emission city. And we are doing the zero emission zone for a range of vehicles. So, uh, private cars um, are particularly affected by the uh, regulations that we're bringing into force. But we also have our taxi fleet being required to become a zero emissions fleet by 2025, the toughest set of regulations in the UK. And we're working with our taxi drivers to ensure that they can have the support they need to convert to a zero emissions fleet whether that be in the form of discounts on their vehicles or on their licences, EV charging infrastructure in the places where sensors on the camps of EV taxis have said that they would ordinarily stop for a charge or for a rest, or just through roadshows and general workshopping, so that people feel more confident about buying an EV taxi, given the large costs involved. And also for our bus fleet. Our buses have historically been a large source of air pollution in the city, as our regulations have been coming into effect over recent years, we've seen their proportion of emissions dropping, and they're moving over to a Euro 6 standard of engine for the zero emission zone coming into force this year. We've brought in £2.6 million to help to retrofit 115 buses to the Euro 6 standard and to have our first five electric buses on our roads. But really, happily, we've just received word from the government that we're in a short list of two to become the UK's all-electric bus town, where our whole fleet could be electric from 2027. And so we're really thinking through how we can help to facilitate that. And the second big policy push that we're making is around trying to install infrastructure, but to also bring together manufacturers and industry leads of charging infrastructure and of vehicles themselves here in Oxford for something called our EV Summit. We're into the fourth year of this city council has been a really important partner and we have leading figures coming from around the ev world and we just had the secretary of state for transport speaking at the ev summit unfortunately held virtually because of the pandemic and that's a space for the great and the good to come together and generate some fantastic ideas and one of those ideas has been project energy super hub oxford which i'll talk about later which is a huge battery which allows for us to have this rapid ev charging hub in the city and you're completely right to identify the importance of self-driving cars. We recognise that the future of transport is going to be shared, it's going to be connected, it's going to be electric, it's going to be autonomous. And so for us, we really want to make sure that we're ahead of the curve. Too often when we see technology changes happen, the public and councils will think that this is such a sudden breakthrough. But you can usually see the forerunner of the change many years ahead of time. The electric car, for instance, has been around for more than a century. We know that early cars were known as horseless carriages because they very much look like them and so we want to make sure that the public are very aware of the changes coming into effect and that they feel comfortable about those changes coming into place and that's really key in a local democracy people need to feel like change can be managed and that local democracy is there and understanding of their needs in order that that change can be managed properly so we have a residence panel which is deliberately representative it brings together people of a range of viewpoints and demographics and backgrounds, so that we can have an understanding about what the city of Oxford and mini population is thinking. And at our last time of asking that residents panel for their views on electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles, we got some really interesting insights. Thirty-three percent of our residents panel thought that the majority of our vehicles and our roads would be electric by 2031. Twenty-three percent thought that a small majority would be electric, and twenty percent thought there would be as many electric cars as petrol or diesel cars. When asked whether their next car would be electric, more than half, a full 55% said that it was very or quite likely that it would be. So I think the story here is a very strong one for electric vehicles. Our public, through our infrastructure investments, our narrative about the introduction of a zero emission zone, are very much aware that the future will be electric for vehicles. And then looking out to autonomous vehicle technology, I think it's fair to say that the response was a little bit more mixed, but this is very much in line with national polling. So 37% of Oxford panel members said that they would not want to ride in an autonomously driven vehicle, even if it was fully tested and declared as safe as a human control one. 30% said that they would. And interestingly for me, a further 32% said that they were unsure. I think that what that tells me is that AVs remain theoretical, they remain elusive. We've got a small number of self-driving vehicles on Oxford's roads, and these are mostly test vehicles which aren't available to the riding public. So I don't think we should be too surprised about the skepticism of Oxford's respondents or of the UK polling respondents. I think AVs are very much starting to have their moment as we see more of them coming onto our roads because the testing that they're undergoing is successful. I think we should become very, very understanding about the needs that they're going to present to our public so that our public feel they can manage that change. And here in Oxford, we are very fortunate to have such testing taking place with a company called Oxbotica. And because Oxford is such narrow and medieval roads, there's a really good learning environment here for AVs in particular.
0: All of that is incredibly impressive. And the leadership that you're showing in advancing all of these technologies, and frankly, this change is impressive as well. And I guess you are fortunate in a way that you seem to be in a community that is at least somewhat, if not the majority of, accepting of these changes. But regardless, I know that when change happens, there are challenges. Some of them are legal. Some of them are technical, some of them are more societal or communal in nature, and all of them tend to be very unexpected. Can you share with us some of those unexpected challenges, maybe starting with the legal first, things that you did not anticipate uh, when you began this project, which you encountered along the way?
1: Absolutely. and I think it's a really good point to make about Oxford's population being one which is extremely open-minded and innovative, largely because we do have two world-class universities, an older and a newer university, right on our doorstep also because we've got a significant series of strengths in the local area in terms of manufacturing of EVs. We've got the mini plant, which is producing electric vehicles within the last year and a half with the electric mini, and we've had car making in the city for more than a century. We also have really amazing strengths in the city with Williams Advanced Engineering based in Oxfordshire, the county that the city sits within. The Williams Advanced Engineering plant is creating high-performance batteries. For the Formula E program, and it's at the cutting edge of battery performance and management. We're also really lucky to have the Faraday Institution on the Harwell campus. It's an independent institute for electrochemical energy storage science, research, and technology. And this institution and Oxford University are the leading projects which could revolutionize the way EV batteries are manufactured. And many of the people who work in these particular spaces are based within the city of Oxford. But I think what's really interesting is that although people professionally are committed to the development of EVs and AVs, they may, when it comes to their own particular families' interests, have different views. So this is one of the ways in which local democracy and councils can play a critical role. We can work with our residents to make sure that they feel consulted and engaged, they're able to express views about the changes coming into effect, and that where it does affect their road or their families, they can feel like they're entirely contributing to the change that's happening. And I certainly can think of a number of times where I've gone into spaces involving people that I would otherwise see in meetings, whether it be about EVs or AVs. And these people are, because of their family needs and their household needs, perhaps objecting to the implementation of specific technological change within their own road or their own community because they just don't think it's appropriate or they think somehow it's going to cause inconvenience. I think the great thing here is just to show that people are people. They will have different attitudes towards technology, perhaps in their professional lives, but actually in their personal lives. It's a real challenge sometimes for people to really think about how they will overcome the challenges and barriers to achieving change. If we look at some of the challenges that we face in City Council in terms of the legal challenges, we have to operate within a set of powers that are provided to us by the UK government and the UK parliament. And that means, for instance, with our zero emission zone, that we have to use a road charging scheme to ensure that we can enforce our zero emission standards for the vehicles at our entry gas centre. Now, would we want something different? Certainly, but we have to operate within the existing framework. And similarly, for EVs and the sale of EVs, we would obviously like the government to go further and faster in their deadline for when there will be a ban on the sale of all new petrol and diesel vehicles. Indeed, we've been campaigning for this. and I think through our alliances we brought that ban date forward from 2040 to 2035 and then to 2030. But we don't get to choose the government today
0: and we have to work within the legal and uh, the powers frameworks that they set out for us. Interesting. So you've mentioned some of the societal changes there, people maybe being generally for technology, but somewhat being reluctant when they see it's impacting them directly, um, or at least being concerned that it's going to impact them directly. How have you addressed that particular mentality or that particular problem?
1: It's a really good question. We, as a council, are a democratically organized and elected body. We're a representative democracy. We are very accountable to our public. And so I very much try to be visible and present through social media, through constant contact with residents, through currently Zoom calls, but previously by just knocking on their doors, by going to community meetings, organized around infrastructure changes, and just constantly keeping that dialogue going. I think too often people will look at politics and democracy and think that politicians are somehow just out for their own needs, or that they're not on their side, or they're not available all year round. They just show up for elections. And for the council, it's really important that we actually are that visible council, that people feel like they have a way to be in touch with us. And that if they get in touch with us, they're going to hear back from us very swiftly with proper dialogue, not just the boilerplate response. And I take that very seriously. I think it's also worth saying that because the city council has been investing in tackling our climate crisis and our dirty air for at least over a decade, we've been doing that despite significant underfunding of local government. We have got a store of knowledge in the City Council which other local authorities and businesses and stakeholders come to us for. And that was something that we really reflected upon when we declared a climate emergency in January 2019. We had achieved more than 5% annual emissions reductions as a City Council. We had helped the City Council get on track towards achieving its overall citywide emissions by 40% by 2020 compared with 2005. And we had helped to bring down air pollution levels by 26% in the last seven years. And for us, it was really a question of, well, if we're declaring a climate emergency, we're saying that business as usual doesn't continue any further. We need a new business as usual. And so we convened a Citizens' Assembly on climate change, the first to be held by a UK city, bringing together a representation of viewpoints and backgrounds and demographics, such that when I walked into the Citizens' Assembly for the first weekend, I could look around the room and see people that I had been on marches and protests for climate action with, People who would have shut their doors in my faces if I'd not, people who would ordinarily say to me that politics doesn't work for them, and people who otherwise might be climate skeptics. And when I looked around that room, I saw a real representation of the city. And the two weekends that made up the Citizens Assembly were wonderful. We had 21 experts coming into the Assembly talking about biodiversity, energy, waste, transport and buildings, all the major source of emissions or factors relevant to getting our carbon footprint down to zero. And out the back of that assembly, through the process of information and education, dialogue and the area of difference in reasonable ways, we were able to come to a consensus view, not just in the fact that we ought to go further and faster than the government's national legal target of 2050 in becoming a zero carbon city, but also that we ought to have the most ambitious scenario for each of those five themes I've just described in terms of how we can address our climate crisis. And that citizens assembly, that mini Oxford population, its findings have shaped all that we've done so that we've been able to really tailor our response to the needs and the viewpoints of the city itself.
0: I'm sure that engagement has had a huge impact and is a great example of how to lead things forward. So let's talk about the technical. Were there any particular technical challenges, though, that you did not anticipate in your rather unique community?
1: I think these are the challenges that would be typically faced by big urban centers. And they are really relating to the capacity of electric vehicles to meet the needs of their drivers. So for a long time now, we've been hearing concerns about the high cost of batteries, the low battery capacity, the fact that EVs may not be cheaper to fuel, are they really cheaper to fuel than petrol vehicles, the fact that trickle charging is the norm. And really what we're seeing now, which is why I think we are having a moment for EVs that feels like a revolution, is that we see battery costs falling, we see battery capacity significantly increasing, we see EVs demonstrably becoming cheaper to fuel, such that people can't really have any evidence based concerns around these. And we see charging infrastructure not just proliferating in terms of trials of technologies, but also in terms of volume of EV charges being made available. In Oxford, I described some of the charges that we've got available, the different technologies that we're trying. But we're also really powering ahead with our installation of public EV charging infrastructure. The council's responsible for over a third of the EV charging in the city. And with the addition of our EV charging hub in the middle of this year, we can really expect that number to grow significantly. And I think it really is just about having a living experiment here in Oxford. When people get to see that EVs are cheaper to buy now, that they're cheaper to even rent on a rental scheme, that they can be cheaper to fuel as a consequence and that. Really, there is an EV charging point which can rapidly charge your vehicle within a 10-minute to 5-minute walk, if not directly outside your home. I think that's going to be really effective at addressing the technical concerns. And in terms of looking out to self-driving vehicles and the kinds of technical challenges that we might think about when it comes to the mass use of AVs, I think this is a really exciting futuristic thinking space. So, for instance, some of the problems we may face could be that AVs could drop you off they could then circle around the city and come to pick you up whenever you want. But Oxford streets, as I was saying, are very narrow. They're very medieval. They're already choking on congestion with fossil fuel vehicles in a time of human-controlled cars. So if we have AVs that are going to be driving around the city, even though they may be EVs and their air pollution would be less, they're still going to be choking up the city's congestion. They're still going to be causing significant difficulties in the flow of human controlled cars and if we have a situation where AVs might be in the first instance mostly owned by better off people than necessarily they might be as you achieve mass adoption that's going to create a real sense of a them and us which democracy will have to address it could also be the case that AVs would risk increasing traffic congestion by drawing people out of other types of transport into private car use so you might feel that people would cycle less you might feel that people would use buses less which would be a real challenge. And I think also when we think about technical challenges, it won't just be in the transport space, it will also be in the building space, particularly the workspace, because AV use will free up space that's currently reserved for parking for entirely new purposes. Just as our new routine of working at home, forced by the pandemic, is freeing up space for office, working for housing, we might find that our understanding of the built environment will be completely transformed over the next few decades. What will it mean if you can live many miles outside of Oxford, but you can drive into work while you sleep because your av is the thing driving you what would that mean for the city and the use of the working spaces currently what would that mean for the spaces that we currently give over to retail and hospitality i think you can see a total reimagining of the built environment and then lastly what would this mean for public transport one thing that i might expect to happen would be that pool shuttles might become more important in order to avoid single passenger avs congestion our roads so we might see fixed schedule services becoming a harder thing to sustain as we move on towards on-demand services. And so Oxford's Park and Rides, were are unique in the country for having these, could become even more important. And you could see really non-stop journeys. You could see AVs arriving at our Park and Rides on the outskirts of the city. They disembark people to board shuttles waiting for them to head into the city. And AVs could be communicating all the way into the Park and Rides with those Park and Rides or even with the public shuttles. So that waiting around really does get relegated to the history books, that non-stop journeys become a thing that people rely on. And if you have a situation where people have their instant travel needs met, well what's that mean as a society? What's that mean? Because we'll be having the sense of instant gratification or I need to be instantly met. How does that create a cultural change? I think these are just some sort of the technical and linked to the societal changes that might flow.
0: Uh, indeed. Given the investments you already have in Oxford and the ones that are on the foreseeable future, it's plain that those investments are, frankly, massive. How are you attracting that investment? I know that some of it is public, but certainly some of it is private as well. Could you tell us a little bit about each of those investments and, frankly, on the private side, how a company who's interested might get involved?
1: Absolutely. We are really fortunate to have on our doorstep both of those World leading universities. It's also great that we've got the Williams Advanced Engineering Plant, the BMW Mini Plant, the Faraday Institution that I was just talking about. We're a real centre for innovation and knowledge. And I think that's a major reason why we've got so much private investment coming into the city itself. There's a huge amount of knowledge on the doorstep that people can tap into. And if I give an example, we have at the City Council a newly created chief scientist role, which is filled by a professor of energy at a University of Oxford school Who himself helped to write the major UN report, which caused this huge wave of climate emergencies to be declared, which is very fortunate in Oxford. And then the other reasons are that we talk really publicly about the kind of city we want to achieve. We set a vision and then we move towards it. With technology, too often you can see money being offered to a community. And so local government will just jump on that opportunity of funding in order just to get some infrastructure in its space. What we've done is take a really strategic approach we really wanted to use our knowledge on our doorstep to trial technologies that would be world-leading so that we become a living lab. It means that when Oxford has a living lab in process, if you pull on a lever within a short amount of time, six to 12 months, you oftentimes can see the direct impact of that change happening, which means that as a council, you can be clear about the kinds of private investment you want to prioritise and support coming into the city, but you also help to facilitate this growth in EV charging infrastructure knowledge and technology which then could be used within the city but modelled elsewhere or scaled up here and elsewhere and i think the last thing that i would say is that because we do talk about wanting to be an ambitious city with this vision by talking about the partnerships that we have in the city which has led to us declaring our ambition to be a zero carbon city by 2040 10 whole years ahead of the national government target we've been able to leverage private financing and two examples i'd give are of project energy super Hub oxford which is a £41 million project funded in part by the government, which is demonstrating innovation in decarbonising power, transport and heat, so that we can speed up Oxford's zero-carbon journey. And he's showcasing a powerful network of rapid EV charging, hybrid battery storage, low-carbon heating and smart energy management. It's going to save approximately 44,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide a year by 2032 in Oxford, and it will help to reduce our emissions of the main concern for air pollution. Now, this has come in because we had the EV summit take place, which the City Council helped convene, brought the leading figures of the great and the good manufacturers of charging infrastructure and EVs themselves, and we got conversation going. We provided a forum and a space for great ideas to be shared. And similarly, Project Leo, which is a huge investment in the acceleration of the transition to a zero-carbon energy system in Oxfordshire, and it's doing this by building an evidence base of the conditions required. For more sustainable and equitable local energy systems, be they social, technological, commercial, regulatory, or policy. And this is a 40 million pound investment too. And it's been delivered through work which enables and tests new energy markets and business investment models. It's advancing the capability of our networks to manage smart low carbon technologies and it's facilitating local participation so that we can actually have local energy citizens. And again, this is happening because we created spaces, we brought leading partners into those spaces. And we basically said, here's our problem. How do we fix it? Let's come up with a partnership bit to come up with a solution.
0: You've mentioned a few times now how your city council's plans fits within the larger UK ambition for this particular space. But can you walk us through that a little bit more? How does your policies and goals here fit within the UK government's larger ambitions when it comes to EVs?
1: It's a great question. They do and they really don't. They do because, inevitably, we're constrained and um, empowered by national frameworks, powers, laws and funding regimes. But we also know that in Oxford, because we do have this ambition to go further and faster and to create a zero carbon city and a zero emission city around which we can deliver so many co-benefits to climate action, whether it be decent housing, better transport, fairer and better places of working and jobs. We know that because we've got that vision, that we aren't going to allow the government to constrain us in our approach. So what we've done, for instance, is to build a really science-based approach to our emissions reductions. Using the chief scientist role and filling it with a professor of energy um, at Major Oxford University School, we've been able to set out carbon budgets on a five-yearly basis, five-yearly carbon budgets, out to our zero carbon date of And we know that by seeking to be zero carbon, which we believe is technically possible, but very ambitious, We know that by going 10 years faster than the government, we're becoming an exemplar city. And by doing that, we hope that we can show the government that they can have confidence that other local authority areas are similarly motivated and that they can look to Oxford for inspiration. And as a consequence, the whole country at a local level can go further and faster. With the UK government set to host the Conference of the Parties Summit, the big UN climate summit in Glasgow at the end of this year, we want the government to look to Oxford and realise that we are a demonstrated city we can hopefully inspire other national governments to up their own nationally determined contributions to the reductions of emissions globally at that summit. We want to work with major cities around the world, be it New York, Los Angeles, Mexico City, Paris, and so on, so that we can together form a club of net zero cities which will reduce our emissions, and in so doing, help our national governments to reduce our national emissions. And I think the final thing that I would want to say is that We also recognize that although we're operating within a framework set by our own government, we are, as other national and local governments are, operating within a framework set by the leading EV nations of the world. So it's really striking, for instance, that we have in China a government which is now saying that as part of its industrial plan, it wants to go significantly further and faster in the development of EVs in their made in China 2025 industrial master plan. Beijing wants 20% of all new cars hitting the streets to be EVs by 2024, which would translate to more than 4 million such cars on the road by then. Now, that's going to have a huge knock on effect for cities like Oxford, particularly given that we've got such knowledge links with China. It's going to have a huge knock on effect on the US too. And I think what we could see here is a real race by national governments, both at a local and national level, to electrify our transport, decarbonize it as quickly as possible. And I think that's a really positive thing and by international cooperation, particularly in the form of UN summits, I think hopefully we can all be a bit optimistic about building a better world.
0: Counselor, very impressive and really appreciate the time you spent with us today talking about Oxford and your your role and all the activities taking place there. If you don't mind, we'd like to check in on you once in a while to see how things are doing and how things are moving forward. That would be absolutely
1: brilliant. And I hope that very soon we're all able to be physically together. And I hope that when that happens, I can introduce you to our EV charging cup being installed at the back end of this year or some of the other infrastructure projects that are underway right now. Because until you actually see them with your own eyes, until you actually feel them with your own hands, it's hard to believe sometimes that this
0: future world is in the making. Um, But it very much is. I would very much enjoy that. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you.